it can be really hard for the product manager to go to bat for the designer and go, well, I agree with you. I think these are big problems, but then to convince sales and marketing that that's why we prioritize this right now, or go to a C-level or some stakeholder meeting and go, my roadmaps can be focusing on these design changes. And often um, designers feel really disheartened that they haven't been a part of the process when they see these things get cut from the roadmap or pushed back and they don't make it as, as far in advance there. And I think my advice to designers out there to think about and maybe understand from the product manager world more is think about the uh, the impact in terms of the company metrics when suggestions come out from customers. Hey everyone. In this episode, I'm talking to my old friend and colleague, Blake Fisher, who is a very experienced product manager from Vancouver, Canada. We discuss his journey and switching careers from journalism to product and the nature of product ops, which is his current specialty. Also, Blake shares his thoughts on AI impact on product managers' jobs, how designers should partner with product managers, and what influences roadmap prioritization and obviously much more. Enjoy. Hey, Blake. Uh, welcome to the show. Long time no see. Yeah, it's been a while. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, uh, I was looking forward to this conversation. It's been, what, more than a year since we chatted last time? Yeah. Uh, you know, last time I think I was hosting you on my podcast, so it's good to reconnect. And you've had quite the journey in the last year, so I'd love That's to catch true. up. That's right. Actually, I, I was thinking about resharing that episode, uh, obviously referencing the, the source, yeah. uh, because there are some interesting insights on the UX career topics as well, and like overall yeah. tech tech career tips. Um, okay, so uh, lots has changed since the last last time we spoke. Yeah. Uh, some sad news uh, for some folks, and like really for the whole industry, it's like really has been shaking. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, uh, even yourself got got uh, directly impacted so really um sad but i'm glad that you're finding this time and uh trying to maximize the benefit of this uh slow period and um yeah improving yeah. and learning yeah it's a really good time for reflection and contemplation on um just everything that went through on the pandemic lots of change and obviously um, the industry right now is reevaluating. Um, its financial features and growth strategies and, and things like that. So uh, I'm very thankful for the time I've had at the companies I've worked for in the last couple of years, and it's been tremendous learning and growth for myself. Yeah, so I've heard that lots of folks predict that this wave of uh, turbulent times in the corporate world, in the at least white-collar world, will create more entrepreneurs and maybe startups and business um, ideas should be spawning off like crazy. Do you have any plans yeah. like this? Yeah, I actually, um, I have some conversations coming up and just seeking out some opportunities because I think my headspace has been going to move away from sort of the scale up problems of large organizations mm -hmm. getting past 100 to 200 employees and larger um, towards where does product management functions and design functions really start inside of an organization. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about companies that are 50 employees and less and just, you know, trying to be scrappy and going through, you know, their product market fit, but when do the functions start to evolve? What's the first hire? Where do those teams come from and what problems are they focused on? I think the years of experience in the companies I've had are making me more curious about the origins of what it's like oh, to really? apply this. So entrepreneurship's definitely on my mind as well as startups. How would you describe the difference? Because I would like to understand it better from, from a PM's point of view, because I have my own opinion on the different sizes of the companies mm -hmm. and how not every time, but quite often the the headcount, the, the total headcount can be linked to the design team headcount right. and sometimes actually design maturity, uh, design team maturity and all the practices and everything. So I wonder if, like, uh, what were your observations between working for different, like, sizes of the companies and how PM's role changed and, like, what problems yeah. uh, maybe are more, more uh, prevalent in, like, different sizes of the companies? Yeah, um, I think about sort of, I, I've had at the last two companies I've worked at, there's always been this talk of a ratio of, like, when mm. product managers, product designers, and engineers have this, like, magic relationship. And the number I keep hearing is somewhere between 
one to one to five. So that's one product manager, one product designer to five engineers, all the way up to one to one to 10, depending on, you know, whether the organization is more confident in its engineering practices, its design practices, or it's more business language and product uh, language practice. Um, but that said, like I mentioned earlier, when is the inception? When do they make their first hire of somebody with a product mindset um, that comes in and comes in with the design expertise or the product management expertise to really steer what the engineering work might be? Because the engineers are often the first in the water. You got to build something. You got to get past the prototype. I find a lot of organizations don't necessarily have a designer early on, which is really unfortunate in the prototyping phase when you're trying to figure out your product market fit, when you're building an MVP that's just from an engineer concept, you run into a whole bunch of inherited creative debt. And whether it's a product manager or a product designer that's mm-hmm. on the ground, that's like one of the first problems they want to solve is matching up what customers' uh, expectations are in the experience side of things. What do they want to see and what sort of problems pop up on that? So I always find in early roles or product managers that are working on um, smaller organizations that they get kind of caught in the weeds of not so much the technical problems, but how do we fix the experience problem that's accrued because we've rushed to get this MVP out in market and it's been mostly led by engineers. So I like that space because there's a lot that can happen there and a lot of like cultural change that can happen in an organization once you start to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like that you've, you've learned so much over the course of these years working in different types of companies, different industries and the different roles as well. Right. So it's kind of really, you've got this variety of experiences that um, formed your perspective right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of jumped uh, the, the, the 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 topics here a bit forward just because it was uh, leading that way. But let, let's start from the from your origin story. Sure. Um, so and especially with your because you are one of those um, what I initially thought was uh, was kind of a unique uh, not unique um, yeah kind of less common paths. Uh, but your career switch, right? So you started in uh, publishing, journaling. Uh, so. I'm curious to hear, like, why, first of all, you moved to product and mm-hmm. um, maybe what skills or what 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 learnings helped you, like, from the previous uh, career paths, uh, career chapters, uh, helped you in your product career? Yeah, um, great question. And I had a good reminder of this recently because my own career path is one I've struggled to find a lot of parallels in other people in terms of how to arrive in you know, product or, or any kind of technology type role. I met somebody who had a very similar path uh, out of a university here in Vancouver, Canada recently, who uh, came from a journalism background like myself and was thinking about the same sort of questions I did. And so the best parallel I'd have to say, uh, rewinding back to my university days was um, I got out of high school and I had a scholarship. I was a good writer. I was a creative thinker and I was very design motivated. And uh, I saw journalism as being a good fusion of all of that. And I loved research. Um, I loved kind of learning about what people think, asking the who, what, when, where, why, and how uh, in my questioning and applying that into how I could write. So I went into journalism. I got obsessed with desktop publishing, photography, graphic design, and uh, interviewing mostly music journalism at the time was kind of a a big key thing that I was into. Um, But applying all that together made me really love the practice. Um, And I think one thing that really motivated me surprisingly was a typography teacher I had who um, really kind of taught me what design and understanding kind of the emotional translation um, of that experience was. So what she pointed me towards was a bunch of like Sumerian history of uh, like cuneiform and the origin of the origination of, of type and how mm-hmm. it was seen as like magic, this like power to um, influence people because the written word hadn't really been applied on a, mm-hmm. a cultural level. And I was fascinated by that concept. It was something that just drove me and going, okay, so we can, we can design things, we can build things, we can talk to people about things and find what really moves them, what changes them, how we can alter their expression. So all of that kind of fused together into a career in desktop publishing. I went into printing. I became a pre-press operator. 
Um, I moved up into um, a role called pre-media sales, which actually was more of a, a technical support where I was going at uh, various magazine publishers across North America. Yeah. And um, it was right around the time the iPad launched and uh, they were just getting into how do we translate the printed medium onto an iPad? What does that look like? What are the processes? Yeah. And I was basically going around trying to figure out needs in that space to make it easy to translate that. So. That was sort of the inception point for me to move into a tech or a product career was I went, this is not a good space. There aren't a lot of good tools or software for helping somebody without much tech savviness in that space to build things. You needed to know Adobe InDesign and you needed to figure out how to hyperlink things. You basically had to think like a web developer in order to translate what you wrote into a book. So there had to be a better way. <laughs> I moved into the startup space. I worked for a small startup here in Vancouver that was trying to figure out like one-click publishing before um, Apple built um, iBooks Author and some other spaces. And that's what got me hooked, trying, trying to translate that problem mm -hmm. into an actual product that we could launch in the market and figure out problems like product market fit, working with uh, auxiliary roles, trying to make sure you know, you're developing the right things at the right time, at the right scale. And this was before I even did any like agile training or anything like that. So I was just rolling with it, trying to figure out what that would be. That company didn't work out, but it just uh, became another bunch of hops after that into, okay, well, now I'm going to figure out project management. Now I'm going to figure out um, product management in an early stage. Now I'm going to figure out how to work at an agency and jump around for a whole bunch of different clients with different problems in different industries. And I think I got really excited by not being so fixed by one industry or one specific type of company, but by just obsessing about customer problems. And I think it was only in the last uh, five to 10 years when I kind of redawned on the thing that excited me, the thing that got me up every morning about product management um, was that thing I felt in university where I had an interview with somebody that day and they were going to be telling me about something that happened at their building. There was like a fire at a building and I had to interview them about like what happened and how they're feeling about it. It's the same thing talking to customers. Um, you're, you're hearing about how their minds work, what's going on around them, what they're trying to do in their businesses, and um, just that connection to people and truly trying to understand what's underneath that, that story that's going on, the problems that sit in there, and then to bring it back to your team and translate that story. Um, that storytelling aspect is the part that really motivates me in learning about people. So actually, uh, on this particular topic, so how do you... How do you separate the research, the customer research that uh, a product manager does and re user research, which is sometimes customer research as well, that uh, a designer does, for example, or if mm -hmm. you have a research? So like, is there like a boundary? Because when, I'm, when I do uh, user research myself, I, it's never limited to just be like this person being a user. It's like yeah. you're trying to understand the bigger context and the story and like the motivations, which is a part of being a designer. So that's what you should do to, to design the best possible solution for, for this particular audience, right? But it's always been like almost like a blurry boundary between what kind of questions uh, maybe are supposed to be asked by PM versus mm -hmm. like designer. Do you have any insight into that? Yeah, um, I, I have two perspectives. One is chatting with the more academic approach, those with like a user experience research background with more of an academic approach. Like the number one thing I hear from them over and over again is how do I reduce bias? And the, the main, main answer I have is it's less to do with the process or the types of questions you have, but it's about make sure not just one person is interviewing. <laughs> you know, add more personalities, add more perspectives into the mix and make sure you're taking care of a wide range of customers. The best organizations I've worked at has both product managers and designers um, all interviewing. And it should be every function is trying to build some empathy and some connection towards the, the customer and the problems that those customers are facing so that you can really connect why you're doing what you're doing. And more than just hearing about it on a presentation from leadership of this is what our company's about and these are the problems we solve, you need to learn that for yourself and see the customers and realize firsthand what they're feeling and what they're going through. Um, but once you have that, how do you merge what the design team's doing, what the product team is doing, and move it all into one space and make sure it's not just disorganized mess, that there's some sort of curation, some sort of organization of, of all of that input and all of that feedback. And so that's been 
a lot of my focus in the last couple of years is like the systems that collect that information, both from a qual and a quant level, and making sure that that's self-serviceable and accessible by everybody, and that the patterns are starting to become clear that more than one individual can look into that that sea of data, see some visualization and storytelling coming from it and go, yeah, I can relate to that. I've talked to customers that experience that problem and that feels right. So it's a trust game, right? I find product managers that go, yeah, I talk to customers. And then they start to say things like, well, how many customer interviews do you have this week? Well, I have five customer interviews a week. And a designer comes forward and goes, well, I had 10 customer interviews. Who has the better perspective of the customer? Well, the number of interviews doesn't matter. It's about where are you looking for that information? Are you actively building empathy with the customers? And are you all working together to correlate that into some larger set that you can start to mine and look at regularly? Because that sea of information, both the qual and the quant, um, that's your product strategy. That That's the part that actually builds the kind of backbone of an organization and avoids bias all the way up to the senior leadership. And it should be used to not just inform the individuals on how to do their jobs better, but also the organization's overall knowledge um, and present that. And that shouldn't be done by one team or one individual, in my opinion. Yeah, good point. Um, but the follow-up question on this would be, so especially if you if you're if you believe or if you think that every function should be at least trying to be in touch with the customers and understand the customers, right? Mm -hmm. So that I assume that's like engineering as well. Yeah, engineering. I mean, there's always the the controversy of how to best spend an engineer's time, and that's going to depend on uh, neurotypes and all sorts of things as to how comfortable somebody is. But um, ideally, engineers should also be curious about this and tap into it when they can. So then the question is: uh, Have you read a book, The Mom's Test? Yes, I have. Yeah, great book. So yeah, I love this book, and for me, it was actually probably I read it when it was a good time for me to mm -hmm. read it. Um, but, but, do you think there is a risk in uh, in establishing this almost like communication or like channel of information between all the functions on the product team and the customers without proper training? Mm -hmm. What kind of questions to ask? What questions not to ask? Even like for even if we are not talking about engineering, but like particular like product managers, right? Yeah. Because it's so easy to to ask around questions, like obviously with all the biases and everything, so kind of, um, so it's it's a known problem. Yeah. So does it mean PMs should have um, product managers should have some kind of training uh, to so to kind of to avoid the, these pitfalls? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um offering the, some sort of bias training, some sort of approach to um, surveying or talking to customers is useful. I think that should also be kind of organizational knowledge that whatever team might be leading on it or doing more of it or um, creating more process around that, that that should be democratized and shared across the organization. But you do raise a good point too, which is these things can always be misinterpreted or uh, lead to some other issues. Um, like I mentioned, when everybody just does it individually and doesn't really have a process about it, um, you run into the problem where somebody goes, well, I'm right because I talked to a customer and they said this. Or That's the classic cool. problem of a sales team going, I chat to customers all the time and the customers <laughs> I need to bring in are asking for feature X, so why isn't that in the roadmap? Um, it's better when there is a source of truth that everybody kind of uh, puts into the repository and there is some sort of known and ideally educated approach as to how to mine that information so that everybody's seeing the patterns from the same lens. It doesn't mean everybody can't contribute to it, but it means that there is some sort of known process to look into that and produce something that everybody looks at and agrees with as their organizational knowledge. So in my last role, um, a voice of the customer program was one such thing. We had a user uh, experience research team as well that was doing um, mass swaths of trying to understand our product market fit better uh, and the overall product strategy. But then you have all the product managers and the customer success teams and marketing and sales teams. They're all gathering this information and they're all going into different tools, different databases, different data sets, different Word docs and Google docs all over the place. So it's organized chaos between one team and another team and what they think the problems are. And it becomes a bit of a shouting match when we just speak about it emotionally in terms of like, well, this is the problems I'm experiencing in my area. 
why is that not reflected on your area's approach to things? So how do you overcome that? How do you glue it all together to some extent and produce um, that single source of truth report? That's a, a fascinating topic that I'm still expanding on and learning more about. But the more that you can build some approach that brings things together, kind of understands common problems and speak about them with the same language and keep it as close to like customer language as possible, as opposed to maybe your internal jargon or problems that your team kind of keeps repeating over and over again, rather than looking at the exceptions that sit within that. That's a, a big problem to solve. And I think that's where larger companies are, are thinking um, is we need to stop that cross chatter between teams and create more consistent strategic thinking. Are you referring to product ops? Yes, a little uh, bit, but not just okay. that function alone. I mean, that was that was my area. That was like my last year uh, really deepening what is product ops, um, what kind of problems are product managers facing, um, what kind of problems are customers facing. And the classic for product managers is ultimately um, how are you doing your roadmap? And the one that I think was a big aha moment for me was um, the topic of statistical significance supporting a data-informed approach to a roadmap item. So if product manager A on the team produces a roadmap for their product area and they go, okay, this is the prioritization I went through and they go, I did like a value effort exercise or a Kano exercise or whatever, it can look really convincing as you see charts and you see data and you see like the presentation, but um, how many people was that informed by? Was it five customers that presented similar findings and therefore that's going through? Um, you know, you look at things like a Kano analysis and product manager A might be producing it off of 50 customer interviews and product manager B might be producing it off of a thousand customer interviews, but product manager B is in a much more popular topic in the organization. And you've got a user experience research team that's also deeply focused on that because it's a new pivot for the organization to develop that thinking. That creates a problem because now the support, um, either from um, a design background or a strategic insights background or a data background, is not weighted to create equality across all the product managers. And so the point I'm trying to get at is by creating separate pools of thought where people are only focusing resource, uh, resources of research at given periods of time towards things that may only be of interest of one product manager, you miss the point on like the overall voice of the customer in other areas and you're too hyper-focused on something new and not hyper-focused on the existing knowledge that already sits there. And so every product manager needs to have past, present, and future data available to them to better inform to a statistically significant amount of data to support what they're doing in their roadmap. And if they're finding that there isn't the data there anymore or it's dripping off or there just isn't enough of it, that's usually a sign that that product area is not as necessary as uh, it could be. Maybe the problems the customers really want are in other areas and it might be better to reshuffle the teams to focus on those problems more. And so I really think the the impact and the reach that sits inside of that is is should be a focus more than sort of the individual functions and processes that most product managers use. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's some deep strategic thinking in action. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, interesting that you like that you said like you you've been doing this for the last year. Uh, product ops specifically, yeah, yeah. Um, thinking so, beyond just you know how to run a product team or how to be a product manager yeah. and more so it's into almost like, underneath it. Yeah, it's almost like the next step of evolution of uh, of your at least your path and being a product manager. So and this is more interesting to you, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I just had a reflective moment where I've been going through a number of organizations, a number of industries and a number of different product roles. And I just wanted to stop and really deepen the thought of like, what are we doing underneath this? Like, does there need to be consistency of process? Should we stay decentralized in the way we do things? Or should we centralize together into bigger communities that do things similarly? How do you move information around as a team as opposed to a bunch of mercenaries that kind of do their own thing? And I think that idea of a bunch of product mercenaries was something that kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit and realizing that maybe there's a better approach to create more of a community with a bunch of different ways to do things. And so product ops was something that allowed me to explore that and um, allowed to understand and deepen kind of my knowledge of things that I previously may not have had time to do um, and to test some of those ideas, see the systems in place and see how it works with others. 
Um, but the other aha in doing it is I realized every function has a similar role. Um, you know, design has a lot of talk on design ops right now. Engineering is a lot of talk on not just engineering yeah. operations, which obviously plays close to DevOps, but I've talked with people who have role titles like EngOps and culture and like how that plays out. So there's a lot of conversations behind the scenes, especially at larger companies on how to streamline things and, and create um, better communities of their disciplines. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it's it's a natural evolution, or at least expected next step for for every function in the company. Yeah. Because it, I mean, the whole purpose is to optimize, uh, to cut the, to trim the fat, so to say, like in the processes and like redundancies, right? So it's optimization of the of the existing mechanisms and yeah. uh, finding ways to to automate stuff and to to make it more effective. And efficient. efficient. Yeah. Efficient. One friend of mine kind of called it, the more I tried to explain my thinking around the product area, he just said, well, isn't that just process automation? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I went, yeah, I guess, you know, every discipline does have its element of process automation right now. But Processes, it becomes more tricky yeah. when you throw out the word process because it may not be process focused. It might just be about holding conversations. And I find it more similar to like community of practices and kind of agile thinking approaches. Uh, than it is about just looking at process. But to some regards, there's writing of playbooks. There's, um, you know, some process descriptions of how to, you know, um, maintain customer interviews or um, produce roadmaps in a consistent way or, or mm -hmm. stuff like that that pops up too. Okay. Okay. That's good. Uh, I want to go back to what you mentioned about uh, the beginning of your career uh, mm -hmm. in journaling and writing, right? Yeah. And as a skill set. Uh, and I completely agree that writing, especially it seems like maybe the last couple, three, four years, writing as a skill set has, has become more and more, I guess, vocal as, as, a, as a profession, as a skill set, like as folks who can do this mm -hmm. um, and more appreciated, right? And uh, I'm talking about design, designers particularly, um, but product managers probably even earlier. Mm -hmm. They kind of started more because like writing for you is like one of the key fundamental um, responsibilities, right? Yeah. So I wonder what you think. What, what's your what are your thoughts on this on this AI and like uh, Chat GPT <laughs> and like all this stuff? And how do you think? And I want to hear your honest opinion about mm -hmm. how it will disrupt. Uh, what will change with the product manager's job? Um, and maybe you've already played with this and uh, you have some first-hand experience sharing, um, yeah, the early observations. Yeah, um, when ChatGPT went uh, into beta and became publicly available for anybody that signed up for it, uh, one of the first things I saw in some product communities that I follow was a bunch of product managers writing problem framing documents using it, uh, solution framing documents using it, and they would figure out how to prompt it effectively. Uh, but ultimately what would spit out would have to pass, uh, you know, kind of like a Turing test of like, <laughs> does this feel like there's truth being presented in it? Or is it just a bunch of jargon recycled in a way that sounds nice? <laughs> and uh, more often than not, it was the latter. Like it, it reads like it could be a good problem framing document and uh, a non-discerning uh, eye or ear uh, may um uh, let it go and go, well, that's enough. But I think it goes into the existential question within uh, the product management world right now, which is, um, are we just following some process that somebody's trying to check a box on you're doing the thing, or is it actually contributing to real conversations, real strategy and real pushes within an organization? And my experience, and if you want the honest opinion of it, is that there's a lot of performative organizations out there that are setting up the methodology, setting up the processes, setting up the functions, and then just assuming it's a playbook that you can write without having to reevaluate or rethink that often uh, until things go wrong and the metrics slip or whatever. But it's, it's an organic creature. You're dealing with a community of people in a tech organization. It's not just the code itself. You're dealing with the way people interact with one another. And um, you, know, you have to think about how these AI tools work. Um, the AI tools are you know, taking a huge swath of other approaches, other writing and trying to reinterpret it in a way that sounds right, uh, that sounds human, that passes enough tests that people go, yeah, that'll work. I'll use this. I won't reinterpret it one more time. Um, and 
do I think chat GPT and other tools like it will change the industry? Absolutely. But I see it more like the way Grammarly affected the industry in the sense of if I was to write um, a doc or a presentation or a speech or something like that, um, I may have wrote it really quickly to get my lucid points down, but then there's needing to be some fix up in the middle. I want the grammar corrected or I didn't like the way I worded that sentence and I'd like some alternatives. And um, I see ChatGPT as an evolution of that where it's round one was just kind of a Google search query bar where you type in, you know, whatever you think your prompt is. But from exploration with things like Dali 2 and uh, MidJourney and other such AI tools, it's not just about writing in a prompt and having it spit something out and using what you've got. You've really got to learn how to use the tool in an advanced way and try and figure out what are the key things that it's looking for. Like Dolly 2 really uh, was interesting to me because if you wanted to create an image and you wanted it to look, um, you know, you want to do a Rembrandt style painting. And so you're going to say, uh, I want um, New York to look like a, uh, the New York skyline to look like a Rembrandt painting, but I want it to only be in black and white. Well, then the thing's going to be picking up New York Rembrandt style, black and white, um, and then it's going to interpret those keywords to kind of put it through. I feel um, learning the way that things are searchable, the way that things are, are readable that way is not commonly known. Most people I talk to that are using these tools are just writing in human language and hoping that it translates and spits out right. And often it comes up with something good. But the best designers, the best writers are using this in a much more advanced way where they're producing something first, a full document, and then they're processing it through the AI tool, which is really just creating uh, a mirror image of it with some changes. And that's where you're seeing, okay, it corrected the sentence for me in a way I didn't think about because it sounds more like a, uh, like one thing I'd be interested in to see this tool go. If I write a product strategy document and I go, hey, take this product strategy document I just wrote, complete verbatim line for line text and write it like Steve Jobs was speaking it. <laughs> and then take that to a conference and speak it like the use of word, the use of language, the use of structure of that goes into the, like the, the linguistic root of how we write and how we tell stories. And I think we all develop our own experiences of our individual voice, but do these tools have the ability to kind of move our individual voice in a direction uh, that we want to go? It's like uh, deep faking, I think is the best example of it. When you look at deep fake video where um, I can write whatever prompt I want and put your face on it as if I'm talking, um, but it's not actually altering the voice. Whereas what I'm kind of describing is the reverse, like don't change the image, change the language into mm -hmm. following somebody else. And I think those are going to be the evolutions in that space where the tools don't just become an open search query. It's actually going to be much more embedded inside of the tools we use. So I think it's a cool proof of concept. Uh, I'm really curious where companies like Microsoft are going to be taking this and betting mm -hmm. it into things like Microsoft Word or, or whatever. I'm sure Google's thinking the same way. Um, but I think that's going to be the next evolution is think about how, what we think about when we write and then go, how can I make that better? What am I trying to do? What kind of a voice change do I want this to be and change all the words where I may say things a certain way, but now you're going to say it with a much more um, confident voice. Maybe I write unconfidently and I want to write with confidence. Mm. So what changes do I need to do? Interesting. Yeah. So, so you're thinking more, it's about, yes, voice and tone and almost like copywriting kind of ideas, um, than stealing the jobs. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's supposed to be like, ultimately the value of these tools is reducing the amount of time it is to create something that is usable. Uh, and it's just going to amplify that much more. You're going to have, like, this is already the case in, say, the way Adobe uses some of its tools in Lightroom or Photoshop or any of its major platform things. AI is really just complementing the speed at which you can produce something of quality. And I think mm -hmm. that's the main thing. It's not going to replace jobs and fully automate anything unless you just want something that sounds right. But if you actually want something of quality, it's actually going to amplify the writers, the designers, et cetera, out there. Uh, to do what they need to do. And you can already see this in place with many journalists are going out there and doing documentaries about is the AI movement going to destroy the industry and take jobs away? Mm -hmm. It's um, the best metaphor I've heard is it's the comparable thing to the uh, creation of the industrial loom, where you had a bunch of people making silk from hand and they can make elegant things. Uh, but uh, it took a long period of time to now you have an industrial loom that could produce wonderful things in less time. Did it completely destroy the industry? No, it just meant it became more specialized. 
And so there was still silk being made and people that had to run the machines. They just had to learn the mechanics of building this with a machine now. Interesting. Okay. That, that's uh, quite a positive outlook. Um, I'm, I've, try, I've played with it a bit uh, for, for a little. And uh, frankly, I think it's, there is still lots, um, lots of improvement uh, for the system that needs to be done. And I think maybe actually the next version, which for what I understand should be released later this year. Yeah. Uh, will be like folds, how I don't know, hundred folds better or even, I don't know. I don't, I can't, I can't even imagine like, what does it really mean in this context? <laughs> it's yeah. like that you, you'll have, you won't need to make, to make as many changes, rewrites. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but yeah, really curious and definitely think that um, everyone should start playing with this um, like right now or if they haven't started yet. And um, like I, like the matter for that I, that I, I was thinking about is more like a calculator. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's as it, at least the way that I, I thought of using it is more like uh, increasing the speed of some more tedious and like more like less like tasks that require less thinking. So instead of, for example, writing a paragraph, uh, a description of something, like the, the system can generate it uh, for you. So, but again, like it's 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 still limited to, and I had actually, I didn't have a good experience in uh, with it in communicating using my voice. So it's actually, oh. it's, it's very generic and it's very, and again, like, oh, I, I'm not sure that I should have expected something <laughs> magical to happen because like, how would it know my voice, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it it I ended up changing more than, <laughs> than the system would <laughs> would output. So it's like it's kind of like uh, ruined the whole purpose. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think like the future is is very curious and definitely I think it will change a lot of industries and how they work. Yeah. Um, not as I guess negatively disruptive as uh, some people, some folks think. I see it like more like again as a tool, as a, as a helper. Um, yeah. But talking about like uh, the the Microsoft integrations, right? Like I think I like the idea. Somebody was like uh, asking, "When is Microsoft after they they announce the partnership uh, mm-hmm. or like investment in uh, in Open AI? Yeah. Uh, when is Microsoft bringing back the Clippy, <laughs> <laughs> the, the smarter Clippy with yeah. like this uh, chat That'll chat kind of integrated? Forever, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it's yeah. kind of it's. I don't think it's actually too crazy because it's uh, it's almost like a part of Microsoft's identity right now because it was such a huge influence on so many people. Yeah, um, that so, was version one of the AI assistant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, knowledge base. Zero point one. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's interesting. Awesome. I think uh, one space that I'm really curious about is um, how it's affecting learning, um, and I don't mean. Oh um, yes machine learning, I mean, like universities and kids trying to get into it. So there's a lot of contention right now where teachers are afraid, can they spot something that's run (laughs) with an AI tool and a kid generally understood the concept or is this just, you know, interpreting, you know, collective knowledge and Mm -hmm. reinterpreting in a way that sounds right. But teachers, um, at least the ones that have been shown on the news or in articles or whatever, mostly seem like they're prepared for the change but that there's going to be uh, ways to observe this. And like, I think it'll change the way we do learning um, to be more hands-on rather than less hands-on. Um, and I don't necessarily mean in person, but I mean like it's going to change us from being able to run large classrooms with one teacher in the front uh, and a bunch of people submitting their essays in to needing to be much more selective to see the process of learning and being more hands-on with students. Hmm. And so I'm curious where that will go because every time we have one of these steps in the evolution of the way we can produce something mechanically or creatively, um, I think the way we adapt as a society and the culture around that shifts dramatically. Yeah. And I think the teaching is going to be a big impact. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely a tricky subject. Um, I, I, I think I saw somebody, some teenager or some college student already created an app that can detect if an essay was written by, by uh, chat, by AI, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, there was one experiment, I think, uh, when deep fakes were hitting the scene and becoming problematic around oh, disinformation, yeah. um, IBM released a tool that could, you know, screen for whether this was faked or not. That's um, I think IBM's doing that again, and there's going to be all these tools that come with it that basically can help teachers screen for whether something was auto-generated or yeah. not. Interesting how, how humans are so inventive, right? So, so some of them may invent, uh, invent one thing, and then <laughs> which may have some, usually has uh, some, I guess, potential downsides or a potential to 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 be abused or misused and yeah. then like almost immediately somebody else invents like something to to counteract it <laughs> to counteract it yes yeah, so yeah. it's it's it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle and like i think it will be kind of going and going and like the next ai will be even smarter so the first generation of counteracting uh, tools will not be able to catch it so and then like it's yeah it's it's almost like yeah um uh, race <laughs> AI yeah. and anti-AI anti or AI detecting race. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's it's definitely kind of a, an arms race, but with the AI yeah, side yeah, of things yeah. where we got to keep up with how it works and how to figure out how to counteract it. Yeah, that's funny. Okay, so uh, let's, uh, let's move to the next topic, which is mm -hmm. more relevant to uh, designers and um, growing as a designer. Yeah. Uh, when they go through their career and the the point of view of really this collaboration the partnership which is should be like the closest partnerships possible uh, between product managers and uh, designers and mm -hmm. as you said like in the ideal world there's like one-to-one -one relationship which is i don't think i've ever had this no it's it's rare <laughs> yeah i admit <laughs> so i'm kind of yeah um but um the idea is that like it should be a real, real close and productive and effective uh, partnership, right? Mm -hmm. So, but what I learned, and I was in the same shoes uh, myself, when quite often, as especially earlier, before I, I understood better uh, how, like what product managers do, first of all, yeah. <laughs> what other things they do that they don't necessarily communicate or articulate in a clear, transparent manner to their design partners. Yeah. Uh, design colleagues, which kind of creates this misunderstanding that, and uh, I, I've heard designers kind of being frustrated that their PM doesn't send them some information on time or doesn't do this or that, uh, when in reality everything has a reason. And what I what I realized is that the PM's world is very very complex. There are just so many moving pieces, and obviously, as a as a good product manager they should be really good at prioritizing <laughs> their their action items uh, like what to do to do lists right uh, so what i want you to maybe to share from your own experience and your observations uh, first of all like what kind of struggles and like what main challenges you have as a, as a product manager maybe let's let's uh, skip the part about the the product ops because okay. it, it feels a bit more uh, it Niche, seems a yeah. bit more kind of <laughs> distant yeah. Uh, from like the the typical product manager's role, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe you can share like maybe you worked with some amazing designer that uh, and w what was special about them, right? Yeah. How designers who listen to this episode uh, to to this conversation can become better design partners and project partners. Yeah, uh, I think that's a great question, and uh, I totally agree. The relationship between uh, a designer and a product manager needs to be very tight and very close, and uh, there needs to be a lot of understanding of what each other do. Um, I've seen sort of the negative patterns in those relationships is where there isn't a lot of conversation and it becomes very um, pushy, like the product manager's telling the designer what to do or like this needs to happen. And um, I fully believe it should be more flat structured, that both should be seen from the same page, having conversations about what needs to be done and comparing and contrasting. I think one of the biggest misnomers um, about what product managers do uh, is when you hear lines like they're the mini CEO or um, <laughs> they need to be the one dealing with stakeholders or that sort of line. And in fairness, product managers, one of the biggest problems they face is they're pulled in a million different directions all the time and constantly thrown into different meetings with different parts of uh, the company with customers and all that. And it can be pretty jarring to kind of uh, focus uh, into one specific thing at any given time because you're pulling in large swaths of conversations to do your best to make everyone happy, which is an almost impossible task. 
Um, but where the relationship between design and product is so pivotal is, um, and the best designers I've ever worked with have all agreed on this, um, is that designers are very good at staying uh, in tune with the customer experience and to um, always use that as a lens to think about the bigger questions that might be going on inside of an organization. So I'll give an example. Um, a product manager might hear from uh, a CEO or some senior leader that the company objective this year is to grow. Uh, we're going to you know, uh, make X amount more annual recurring revenue or we're going to grow our customer base by X numbers. And then they go off and have to have a meeting with sales or marketing and uh, they are going to um, balance out what their strategies are to do the same thing and accomplish that goal. And they're like, well, to do this, we're going to need... Um, you know, a bunch of investment in, in the roadmap. We need to figure out when the timelines are going to be, what the go-to-market is going to be on this, and we need all that to launch. Um, the product manager comes back to, you know, the, the engineer and the design and the rest of the team that they might be actively working on, and they're going, well, the CEO wants me to do this, sales and marketing wants me to do this, uh, so here's a roadmap. And the designer might go, um, well, like, I've been talking with our customer base on this feature all the time. I've done some prototyping um, and uh, they are really frustrated by this problem. And here's some data to support it. And here's some surveys we ran to, to support it. If that conversation doesn't happen and the designers kind of left in isolation with the work they've done to, to understand that they think this is the problem, there becomes a problem in bad organizations where the product managers having to weigh who's opinion or, or perspective on the matter is more important. And when I say it's hard to make everybody happy, they could all be in different opinions. They could be, um, you know, the CEO may think one way and they have their reason to be informed that way. The sales and marketing team may have a different approach and the designer uh, trying to, you know, have the best understanding of what customers need in this regard is saying a different thing. The toxic relationships is where the product manager doesn't listen to the designer because in that situation, there's different motivations underneath it. Like with a CEO, you have to understand the business objective, but there's always a trust issue there in terms of whether the CEO actually trusts that your team's process is the right way to go about it. With sales and marketing, they're just motivated by making sales and looking at growth, but they're not less necessarily listening to the customer in the same way that a product or a designer or person would do it. So... I always like to think about things being as flat structured as possible within the team where the engineering perspective, the design perspective and the product perspective need to be an equal footing and balance with one another to produce the closest clarity to what needs to be done. And if the designer does not have that, um, that level of respect within the team, it can be a big problem. Um, and so it's a negative pattern. It's a red flag when I see designers as just being doers and they're just given tasks and kind of hand it off, go do this thing, instead of equal contributors towards understanding what the customer needs and the experience it needs to develop there. But sometimes when the designer goes, I think this is really important and I the customers are talking to me about it all the time and it's something like accessibility changes or um, something to do with like the way the design is presented, a bunch of you know UI changes that would make things simpler or easier. It can be really hard for the product manager to go to bat for the designer and go, well, I agree with you. I think these are big problems. But then to convince sales and marketing that that's why we prioritize this right now or go to a C-level or some stakeholder meeting and go, my roadmaps can be focusing on these design changes and often um, designers feel really disheartened that they haven't been a part of the process when they see these things get cut from the roadmap or pushed back and they don't make it as, as far in advance there and i think my advice to designers out there to think about and maybe understand from the product manager world more is think about the uh the impact in terms of the company metrics when suggestions come out from customers so if you hear like an accessibility request that like, you know, there's a few customers that need um, better screen reading capabilities or something like that in the platform, that's a serious thing for those customers. But how many customers are impacted overall? And like, what is the company situation right now? Are you in a good position where there's lots of float? There's lots of time to include other small things as we go along. Are you building a new design system that, you know, can include this and it's the right time to kind of execute that strategy? that balance is something that could be really hard for product managers to pull the right things in at the right time and to convince others and tell that story to others of like, this is how I position it and this is how it's going to work. And product managers need to do a better job of communicating how they made their decisions and how they prioritize or what they're thinking um, about including that at a different time rather than just giving a no or we bumped it because. 
Um, and I think that can be really hard, not just to receive all that information as a product manager, but to also provide the context of why these decisions are made and how and where they're coming from. And to also give a follow-up of, I still think this is really important. Let's figure out together the right time to represent this back and come up with a larger plan on how we're going to include this as small pieces towards a bigger plan that the organization wants at that time. Um, and so that give and take is something that I think is invisible for anybody except the product manager who's really just dealing with the fires around them and trying to make everyone happy. Yeah, that, that's very, very good insight, especially about the transparency of the decision making. Um, and actually, it, sh it should work both ways, like in this in this particular relationship. Um, uh, because sometimes, yeah, designers make decisions, design decisions uh, without, and I've heard like some questions like about really, especially during the presentations when the rationale wasn't explained and um, it's not always obvious why this or that decision was made, right? Like I'm talking like design specific things. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, designers would also benefit from being more uh, articulate about their, their thinking. Yeah pros and cons that they um, explored and um, analyzed for each of the options that they looked at, uh, looked into. And uh, I like the comment about like the product managers communicating about how they prioritized or deprioritized and why, right? Yeah. And I agree. I would love this uh, to, to, to know more about this um, when working with PMs. Not, not every PM communicates clearly on this on this front particularly but i suspect that this is because they just have a gazillion of other things to do and it's like this part almost like below the line <laughs> fold of all the other things that are kind of fires the real fires right yeah enough almost like neglecting the this communication in the team which in the long term uh usually would be would be resulting uh would result in in maybe some strain in the relationship or just uh, loss of trust, loss of trust, right? So the question though for you, because you, you've been through several different environments and uh, team structures and roles, have you found a good way, like a, maybe a good way to solve this problem of lack of communication uh, between PM and UX? Like that, PM should be communicating to to to, to designers. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, like what really maybe there's I don't know some specific mechanism like templates or an application of sorts or I don't know maybe some routines that every week there is like this particular document is sent out or I don't know or maybe there is something always available like maybe the whole roadmap is available and you yeah. just capture this uh, rationale for prioritization like clearly um, so everyone on the team can see that. Like any, any tips? Yeah, um, I think you laid out a few that um, I've seen work well or have not been implemented. Um, for one, the idea of like a roadmap, not just being assembled last minute and thrown out in a meeting and then everyone giving it back afterwards. I think living roadmaps are, are useful. And if there's changes, decisions that have been made or things that get shifted in their prioritization, that those decisions get communicated effectively to the team before, you know, it's updated on the visual roadmap or whatever. So, you know, we may have had a three month run that's going to look like this and then suddenly half of that's bonked off of it and now we've got some other things thrown in there why where did that come from like a lot of that context isn't necessarily given and the feedback i hear from designers all the time uh, in my experience and who i've worked with is um they they need more runway ideally if they're going to do research effectively uh they need to start thinking further out and if things keep shifting on such a short timetable how can you do thorough research and there's got to be that balance as a team because it's i don't think is a design function universal of thought but it's about the individual designer and their comfort zone and the product manager and their comfort zone and how to create the right amount of dialogue that both sides feel heard and are given the best situation that they can possibly be presented in their organization and so um, I think just, again, that context of a product manager going, I had to change the roadmap because and explain the meeting or the decision or the conversation or whatever that led to that. And then for everybody to see that source of truth in a roadmap where it gets reflected and making sure that those conversations are open and constantly happening is going to be important. 
And on the design side, you know, if they have a really good customer call, if they, um, you know, complete some sort of research finding or a mock-up or something like that, where they're like, okay, well, this clarified for me what I think is our priorities right now. And I, I want you to know this so we can inform that and in how we're going to plan out our team uh, structure or strategy going forward. Um, making sure those relationships are open to hear each other because, the one thing I would kind of say as a criticism to product managers is um, they get so caught up in meetings and having to constantly be around, running around to this and that and that person's opinion and that person's opinion. Um, we are not good at saying no to the meetings that aren't necessarily of value and saving that time to then sit with our team or read through things or click through, you know, a Figma uh, prototype or something like that and really understand the thinking of not just the designers, which is important, but also maybe some of the engineering decisions that are going on around the team as well and really understanding what the team is doing and why and really treating them as like an equal partner against the rest of the organization. Um, the best organizations think like a team, like a squad, like a pod, whatever you want to call it, but um, they are much more focused that 50% of their time is dedicated to that team. And the other 50% might be individual contributor, writing up documents, having other meetings and things like that. But a product manager is sometimes in a tricky situation where they can't protect their schedule that way. They're, they're forced into large meetings or, you know, big brainstorming sessions or strategy sessions or whatever. And uh, I think that balance of a product manager's time is the hardest thing to wrangle and is the biggest variety that I've seen from organization to organization where, sometimes product managers can't change that and that's a problem and that's a toxic pattern that will impact design and engineering and the teams themselves yeah yeah okay okay thanks for for sharing these uh, these insights and uh, tips um yeah, actually one other thought i'll add to that too just mm -hmm. um around the process of building a roadmap so i find um i've chatted with a lot of designers and engineers and they're kind of clueless as to how roadmaps are assembled a lot of the time um, it just happens and then they have a conversation about it after it's there as a talking point. And I think it is useful as a talking point, but I think PM should also be a lot clearer around the methodologies that they employ as a team and why, and maybe be open to some criticism if there's a better way that the team can see it all contributing into it and the reasons that, you know, include these changes. The more that a team sees things together and understands what the PM does, I think the better it is to kind of give that context back and understand the changes in a way that doesn't feel like they're just being cut out or ignored in that situation. So that's one of the PM things that I would say um, could be better educated is like, what are, how do you approach something like a Kano methodology or whatever? And, and how's that assembled? Or one of the more recent examples that I really like is um, Teresa Torres's uh, opportunity trees, uh, where you actually take like a brainstorming exercise with the whole team and you start to map out opportunities tied to like customer insights and you start to go, okay, let's plant that out and map that out and figure out which is right for us at this time before it goes into a roadmap. And that's how we can suggest things. Those models are, are more innovative and I think more um, open to a team to brainstorm together. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, one more like a personal question, but um, uh, I'm really curious to, to hear. If money wasn't a question, what would you do? Mm -hmm. Uh, definitely one I've been thinking about a lot lately. <laughs> um, uh, I love experiences and stories. So, you know, any opportunity for pause where I can throw myself out into the world and kind of see things from a different perspective or eyes. Travel is one that's really good for me, especially places that don't speak my native English tongue or whatever are really helpful for me to kind of... Um, humble myself and throw myself into a different way of being. And I find I come back from that very refreshed because it changes up my mode of thinking between something so static and where I live day to day. So um, if money wasn't an option, I would definitely make travel, uh, especially to other cultures, much more of a common thing for me as opposed to just vacation trips here or there. Um, but I would still very much be curious about business and entrepreneurship and how do people think and all that. I might focus a little bit more in um, sociological, anthropological kind of efforts in terms mm -hmm. of culture and understanding that more. Uh, and, and art, I would probably be pursuing um, more in terms of like fine arts kind of things. I think I'll simplify the answer. 
I would travel more and I would probably go back to university and try and build up some more disciplines. That would be something that I, I haven't been able to commit the time or the resources to in some time. And if money was an option, I would do more of that. Cool. Awesome. Okay. So last question, uh, where can folks find you? And, um, as far as I remember you, you're also active in the, in the product community and yeah. you're creating some content. So maybe you can share a bit more like where folks can learn more about product ops or any other content that you create. Sure. Yeah. Um, so if anybody wants to reach out to me, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's kind of the best place, place uh, to contact me. Um, Blake Fisher on LinkedIn, or I think it's E. Blake Fisher um, as the full uh, handle on that. Um, if you want to see anything more about product ops, I'll sometimes share some posts on LinkedIn. Um, I've been doing a lot of public speaking around Vancouver, Canada. So I work with an organization called uh, Product BC, which is a nonprofit for product managers in the Vancouver area. Um, and I've been speaking at conferences uh, locally, both on conferences and regular conferences about kind of where my head is at and systems and culture and product ops in general. So uh, if you're in the Vancouver area and you see my name on a thing, come uh, chat me up. I'd love to talk to you. Sounds good. Awesome. Okay, that's uh, that's it for today, Blake. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming and sharing the the product manager's point of view and uh, all the tips and tricks on how designers can also become better better project partners and uh, work more effectively with uh, with product managers. That yeah, was well, thanks helpful. for having me on. It was great to catch up and uh, to have that conversation. I love the AI part. It's good. Uh, not enough opportunities to chat on that more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's, it probably deserves like a separate episode for that. <laughs> probably, yeah. Maybe, Maybe a fire would... uh, side chat type thing. Yeah, exactly. So some live sessions. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, awesome. I'll see you around, Craig. Okay. See ya. Bye.